But um, hopefully you guys got, got some good rest and you're ready to get right into the Word this morning. And um, as I mentioned yesterday, what I'm going to be doing is yesterday we talked about how the gospel works in the church or in ministry. And today I'm going to talk about how the gospel works at your work, uh, what you do during the week, uh, whether you work or you're a student, how does it look like to live out the gospel? So before we get, uh, before I read the passage and pray again into today's passage, um, let me get a little show of hands. How many of you guys are working right now? Okay, a lot of you. And how many of you guys are students? Okay, so for this sermon, when I say work, for you guys that are students, just think study. So don't let others who apply to me because I'm not working. Um, it's for you guys who are students, your job, full-time job, is to be a student. So whenever I'm talking about working with the gospel, just replace it with study. All right? That way you can't say, well, nice sermon, but it's not for me. I could be lazy. And you're going to see that's not the case. So, All right, if you have your Bibles, if you could turn to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. We'll be going over verses 2 through 6. Colossians chapter 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open the door to us for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you are to answer each person. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come before your word this morning as we look at what you have to tell us about how we are to work, with what perspective, with what kind of understanding of mission. I pray that you would challenge us to redefine our positions in our job place, our positions as students, that we will have a new motivation of waking up and going to work in light of your kingdom and the gospel. So I pray now that my words may be yours, that you may do your work in our hearts, your spirit may bring to light the areas in our lives that need to be addressed, and that we will have the courage and strength uh, to address them. We thank you, and we praise you, your son's precious and holy name. Amen. I enjoy watching movies. I'm a big movie buff. And a movie I saw um, that I really liked was 21 Jump Street. How many of you guys watched that movie? Well, for some of you older folks, you'll know that this was a remake of an older movie. And if you haven't watched 21 Jump Street, it's a story about these two cops who play undercover high school students to figure out who are the drug dealers and to bust the drug dealer to stop this drug ring. But what happened is that one of the cops, in this case Channing Tatum, who's very buff, good looking, popular in high school, and the other cop was this short, fat boy, Jonah Hill, and um, they got caught up with the high school politics in the process. Right? Channing Tatum kind of went back to his glory days in high school where he was popular and he got to relive his glory days. And, and Jonah Hill was kind of left out and he was reminded of all the times he was bullied in high school. And what happened throughout this movie is that because they forgot their mission, because they forgot why they were at the high school, they got distracted 
They wasted time, and it took them a while to get back to actually finding the drug dealer they were supposed to find. You see, when a person is an undercover agent, he or she must remember that they are working with a mission, that they answer to a higher authority than the environment that they are in. And what happens when you forget your mission is that you get distracted, you get discouraged, you get depressed, because you're so focused on your environment without realizing that you are serving a greater purpose. You are back in high school again, getting caught up with high school politics and gossip, when you forget that you are not there to enjoy high school, you are there for a mission. See, I think for a lot of us as Christians, when we go to our work, we just view our job as a job. We view our boss as a person we answer to Monday through Friday. And as a result, we get discouraged, we get discontent, we don't like our jobs, and we hop job to job to job trying to find that perfect job, but we forget our mission in the process. You see, all of us as Christians are undercover agents. We answer to a higher authority. Our boss is not the person you answer to Monday through Friday. All of us have the same boss. Our boss is King Jesus. So whether you're a student, a barista, uh, whether you're a doctor, or a lawyer, or a teacher, whatever your job is, that is not really your ultimate job. Your job is to be an undercover agent for King Jesus. It is to live for His kingdom, for His purpose, and to recruit more people into His kingdom through you. So last time what we talked about was that when you go to church, you go to church to work. Today, we're going to learn that you go to work to be the church. So you go to church to work, but you go to work to be the church. Now, this is the reason why I want to talk about this. Because I think oftentimes, we focus so much on what we do as a church body on the weekends or maybe once a week, that we lose sight of the 40 to 60 hours we are spending at our jobs or as a student. And if you really think about the amount of time we spend in our lives, the majority of our times are going to be at work. What that means is that your spiritual formation is going to happen primarily through the way you work. I mean, just think about it. 40 to 60 hours can never outweigh one to two hours on Sundays. And so how you work, the perspective you have, how you treat your job, how what you do in the workplace matters more than how you worship on Sunday mornings. Just by a numbers game, right? You see, our spiritual formation that our work, our jobs, can be the greatest place of spiritual growth or spiritual detriment. It can be the greatest place of blessing or curses, all depending on how we view our jobs and how we work. That is why I think it's very important to talk about our jobs and our work. Because a lot of times as Christians, we separate it. We think our jobs, Monday through Friday, that's me time, that's about me, making money or whatever it is. And then God, you can have my weekends. But that's not how it works. You see, King Jesus says, I am king over all your life. I don't just care about the two hours on Sunday mornings. I see Monday through Friday how you work. I see what your thoughts are being filled up with. I see what you really desire and love. And what I want is for every area of your life to be under my sovereign command. Which means that as my undercover agent, you better go to work, understand that you're working to, for me, not for that human being. So the question I want to answer today is this. How do you work with the mission? How do you work, especially in a job you don't like, which some of you guys might not like your job, how do you work at a job you don't like or you even hate with the mission? 
How do I find purpose in a meaningless job? Well, here's how. Let's start off with the first trait Paul talks about, and that's gospel-centered prayers. I want you to look at verse 2. Paul writes, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Now, the command that Paul gives in the first two verses is to continue steadfastly in prayer. And the first way we are to continue in prayer is by being watchful. What that means is that we are to pray defensively. See, watchful was a word to use to describe guards, prison guards. So what he is saying is you have to have an attitude of a prison guard. You have to be on alert. When you pray, pray defensively that God will protect your hearts at all times. Now you guys might be wondering, why do we need to be on the guard? Well, what are we protecting our hearts from? Well, 1 Peter 5.8, Peter tells us that Satan is like a lion looking to devour us. In other words, whether you realize it or not, you're going to be under attack at work. And I'm not talking about your co-workers or your boss. Ultimately, Satan can use your time at your job to distract you from the mission. Or he could use your time at your job to make it all about the job. Now, maybe you have a horrible job that makes you discontent or the best job in the world that makes you greedy. Whatever it is, when you are not defensive in your prayers, your hearts will be vulnerable to all sorts of messages and distractions that will make you forget about your mission. You see, the Colossians are a group of Christians who lived in a city that was mixing Jesus and culture. Christ and culture were getting mixed together. And so they were hearing a lot of different messages. And they didn't know really what it looked like to live as a Christian in an unbelieving world. And so what Paul says is that the reason why we get distracted, the reason why we forget, is because we are not being watchful. We're not going to our work every day with an alert attitude. We just go nonchalantly. Just going with emotions. If our coworkers do it, we do it. If our other fellow students do it, we do it. We don't really think twice about each day. How are we living? What am I doing? Why am I doing it? This is why people get caught up with office politics or about chasing that promotion. Or after 20 years, they're trying to get some paycheck. When they finally get it, they realize they wasted 20 years for something that doesn't even last. Now, you might be wondering, how do we pray defensively? Notice what Paul adds in verse 2. At the very end, he says, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Literally, being watchful in thanksgiving. The way you are watchful, the way you guard your heart, is to be thankful. Let me repeat that. The way you guard your heart, the way you protect yourself from Satan's temptation, the way you protect yourself from being distracted at the job, is to be grateful grateful, thankful. You see, thankfulness is the soil from which defensive prayers grow. This is why I say this. If you only pray to God in order to complain, what does your prayer sound like? Let's just think it through. Think through I want to think through how I you know, pray a lot of times. God, I hate my coworker. They did it again. Fire him. Fire him, right? God, my boss is a pain. I should have gotten a raise last year. They didn't give me a raise. Do something. Change it. You see, if you pray only when things are going bad or only to focus on the negatives, your prayer becomes a list of complaining. It becomes more self-focused, in other words. The more you pray with ingratitude and ungratefulness, the more selfish you will become because you're going to focus on what I'm not getting from my job. But when you start to pray with gratitude, you start to look beyond yourself. You start to look at 
okay, God, you placed me in this job for a reason. I am thankful for this job. What can I do to contribute? What can I do to be a blessing? What can I do to help my workplace? What can I do to be your light and salt? See, thankfulness, gratitude, is the way you protect yourself from complaining, from distraction, from discontentment, and chasing idols. And the way you become content and grateful is that you become confident in God's providence. Let me repeat that. The way you become thankful and content is when you are confident in God's providence. In other words, you understand that God never makes a mistake. So whatever job or situation I'm in, that's where God wants me to be. If he wanted me to be in a better situation, he would have placed me there. But he wants me to be here. You see, the reason why we complain is that we're questioning God's providence. We're wondering, God, are you really listening? Do you really know what you're doing? It's a sign of a lack of faith when we complain. But we can be grateful knowing that wherever you are today, that is exactly where King Jesus wants you to be. This is exactly what he thinks was best for you at this season of your life. So all of us, no matter what your job is, you can be grateful for the fact that that's where your general Jesus enlisted you to go. This is the way Paul said in Philippians 4. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, notice what he adds, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard, notice that language, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The way you guard your hearts, guard your mind, the way you prevent anxiety and discontentment is when you pray with gratitude. When you trust that God is in control. So that's how Paul begins. If you want to have, if you want to work with a purpose or work with a mission, begin by praying defensively, protecting your heart from complaining. But second, he adds this, pray also offensively. I want you to look at verses 3 to 4. Paul adds, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us the door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Now the word door is metaphorically used to describe an opportunity. And so Paul doesn't say, I want you to pray to open up the door so that I can get out of prison. You see, if I were Paul, and he's in jail, by the way, when he's writing this, my first prayer request for Paul would be, can you guys pray so I can get out? I'm tired of being a prisoner. I'm hungry. They're, they're whipping me and hitting me. They're mistreating me. But Paul doesn't pray that. See, Paul understands even his imprisonment serves a greater purpose. Even his imprisonment is exactly where King Jesus wants him to be. So instead of saying, God, take me out of this situation, Paul says, God, let this situation be used for the gospel. Open up the door, not for me to escape, but for me to proclaim, for me to tell people about the gospel. And that's an amazing thing because we see in the book of Acts, that's exactly what happened. Paul kept singing uh, Thanksgiving and Psalms, and he kept preaching the gospel to the point that even the people guarded in jail became Christians. It, got, it became such a hazard that the Roman Empire, the Roman Emperor didn't want to put anybody in the prison cell because they're afraid, man, Paul keeps converting all these people, so let's just stop guarding him, right? That was Paul's attitude. I mean, even when he was in his lowest moments being in jail, the first thing on his mind was first, protect my heart from complaining and ingratitude. The second, help me 
preach the gospel. Help me look for opportunities. Help me to be strategic in this way. You guys might be thinking about this. How can Paul pray this prayer? I mean, that's a pretty difficult prayer, right? I mean, let's be honest. How many of us would pray that if we were in jail? We will all probably be thinking about our needs first. I'm hungry. God, can you give me some food? I miss my family. God, can I see my family? I'm tired of being in jail. This is not even fair. I didn't do anything wrong. Can you get me out of jail? But the reason why Paul prays this prayer is because he understands that life is a mission. He is praying with a missional lens. And in every circumstance in his life, he is always thinking, how will this further God's mission? Even at my expense, how will this further God's mission? Let me ask you a question. Do you guys pray about your jobs? Or when you do pray, what do you usually pray about? I hate that person. I deserve a better job. I deserve a promotion. Maybe some of you are in jobs that feels like a jail cell, to be honest, right? Your boss is that guard that just keeps hitting your jail cell. Your coworkers are other jail cell men. You guys just complain together. You're a, you're a prisoner in front of your computer screen and you're not allowed to leave the room, right? You don't have any freedom. You get a 30-minute lunch. Even prisoners get at least one hour of daytime, right? And you only get 30 minutes and you feel like your job is a jail cell. And, and, and to be honest, maybe it is. Maybe your job is horrible. Maybe your job is the worst thing you could ever experience. But you know what Paul says? Even in your job, that you hate, even if it's a jail cell, pray defensively and offensively. When you start praying this way, it won't change your job, but it will change you. It will change how you view your job. No longer will your job be a curse, you might actually start seeing your job as a blessing. You see, I believe that some of us are discontent with our jobs, or discontent with being students, or discontent being in our certain life circumstance, because we are not working for the mission. We are not living for God's kingdom. We're thinking about our kingdom. And so if it's for Andrew's kingdom, well, according to my timeline of plans, I should be here by five years. I should be here by 10 years. But when I look back, this is not the life I pictured. When I thought I was 25, I thought I was going to have all these things good. When I thought I was 30, I thought I was going to be retired and a millionaire. When I thought I was 35, I thought I was going to have five kids and happy. But life is not going as planned. And the problem is, is that you're planning life as if, as if it's your life to plan. But it's not your life. You're an undercover agent. Your general dictates your life, not you. And the beginning step of finding purpose and living with the, uh, working with the mission is when you start to understand that you are a soldier. You don't get to decide where to fight, when to fight, the only thing that matters to you is this. General, what do you want me to do today? That is what I'm going to do. You know, I kind of ask myself this question. How does Paul think this way, right? I mean, he's not a superhuman. We know that Paul was a sinner. He was a murderer before he became a Christian. It wasn't like he had this secret sauce or ingredient that we didn't have. So how can Paul be content even when he's in jail? And this is the conclusion I came to. Paul knew Jesus' heart because he talked to Jesus often. It's hard to pray the way Paul prays 
It's hard to view your life the way Jesus wants you to view it unless you're talking to Jesus often. Right? If I never talk to my wife, it's going to be hard for me to know my wife and to do what my wife wants me to do, right? In a lot of ways, it's hard to know how Jesus wants you to work if you're not talking to Jesus. You see, a lot of times I think we view prayer like a list of complaints to God or talking to Santa Claus or rubbing a bottle of a genie and saying, God, here are my plans. This is what I want. Just this is, do it for me. But this is actually what prayer should be. Prayer is having a walkie-talkie and it's talking to your general. It's going, shh. All right, general, what do you want me to do today at work? Shh. All right, general, what do you want me to do with my coworker? Do you want me to love them because it's really annoying? Oh, I need to love everybody? Oh, all right, you always say that. All right, General, what do you want me to do? Should I talk to him about the gospel, invite him to church? That's kind of awkward. Oh, you want me to do that every time? All right. All right, General, what do you want me to do? Can I complain? I really hate my mom. Oh, don't complain. All right. You see, that's what prayer is. It's always checking in, talking with the General. What do you want me to do here? What do you want me to do here? How do you want me to treat this coworker? How do you want me to view this situation? You see, because God is in control, because God is sovereign, that gives us the motivation to pray. You know, some people think, well, if God is in control, why do I need to pray? I throw back this question to them. If God is not in control, why should you pray? Right? If I can't change your situation, you shouldn't ask me for any help. It's like, Andrew, can you lift 300 pounds for me? I'll be like, keep asking. I'm not going to do it because I can't. You see, the only reason why you should ask or pray to God is because you know He has the power to do it. Because he's in control, because he's sovereign, that actually motivates you to pray. Because you know he's the only one that can change the people around you. He's the only one that can actually bring life to a dead situation. He's the only one that can help you be content even when you want to be discontent. See, that is why prayer matters for Paul. Before you get into how to live, what to say, he says, how are you praying? Are you praying defensively, protecting your heart from complaining and ingratitude? And are you praying offensively, always looking for opportunities for the door to open up so that you can share the gospel, you can live the gospel, and help those around you? You see, the bullet of God's power will only come out of His chamber when we pull the trigger of prayer. God has all the power to bring life and transformation, but the way that bullet comes out of His chamber is through the prayers of His people. That's the way God ordained it. He said, I will only act once you pray. Once you ask me. Once you come to me. Then I'll show you my power. And you know why he does that? Because if he showed you his power without you praying, you might be tempted to think it's something you did. Oh, well, it must have been because I ate pastrami that day. I ate pastrami every day and it changed with my friends, right? It was like, oh, maybe it's because I did. No, no. Once you start praying, you'll be very aware. Things started changing. People started changing once they started praying. Once God started working. When we pray, God works. But when we work, God stays in the background. And so the first way you work with a mission is you pray. Defensively and offensively. The second he has gospel, gospel-centered living. Gospel-centered living. I want you to look at verse 5. Paul adds, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. The first way we are to live, the first trait of gospel-centered living, is to live wisely. Do you notice he says, walk in wisdom? Right. The idea of walking is the way you conduct yourself, the way you live. And you guys might be wondering, what's wisdom? 
Wisdom is very different from knowledge. Knowledge is something you can get from a classroom. Wisdom is something you get when you apply what you know from the classroom to everyday life. See, knowledge is knowing how to shoot a gun. Wisdom is knowing when to shoot that gun. gun. You see, wisdom is taking God's word and knowing how to apply it to your situation at that time. And the reason why it matters that you should live wisely is because all of us preach the gospel in two ways. We all preach the gospel with our lips and with our lives. And if you don't live wisely, anything you say with your lip will be contradicted. I love Jesus. It's all about Jesus, but yet you're living in an unwise way. People look at your lives and they it contradicts your lips. See, before people are willing to hear what you have to say about Jesus, they want to see how you're living. They want to see, are you living just like me? Because why do I need Jesus if there's no change in your life? But if you live wisely, if you know how to apply God's word, if you know how to treat other people, if you know how to work well, that is how people will be open to hearing what you have to say. But the second thing he adds about gospel-centered living is not only to live wisely, but to live purposefully. I want you to notice again what he says in verse 5. He adds, making the best use of the time. Making the best use is a commercial term. It's the idea of making transaction. And so what Paul is saying is that every minute of your life, you're making a transaction. You're depositing money into either one of two banks. Either you're depositing into the bank of Jesus and his kingdom, or you're depositing into your bank and your kingdom. All of us, our time is a commodity. Our time is valuable. It's more valuable than money. You can't make, you can make up money, you can't make up time. And so what Paul is saying is make the best use of the time. Deposit, invest your time for God's kingdom and not for yourself. You see, the interesting word that, that sticks out here for me is the word time. You see, there's two Greek words that translate as time. One of it is chronos, where we get chronology, and that's the idea of sequential time. This is time you can make up, right? You woke up 10 minutes late, so you have to drive 10 minutes faster to get to work on time. You can make up this time anytime. But he doesn't use that word here. When he says making the best use of the time, he uses the word for season. And if you, all right, I don't think anybody's farmers here, but if you're a farmer, you understand season is limited, and once that season passes, you can't make it up. When it's the season to sow, you have to sow during that time. But when it's the season of harvest, if you didn't sow, it's too late. The sowing is done. Your harvest depends on your sowing. What you reap is what you sow. There's a season to everything in life. And this is what Paul's point is. Everybody in this room is in a certain season of life. What that means is that the people you interact with at work or the stage of life you are in is temporary. You can't make that up later. I can't relive my 20s now. It's too late. And some of you are going to look back in your life at the certain people that you cross paths with, and you're going to realize, I didn't deposit into the bank of God for them. I didn't really care about the people around me. I was so concerned about myself and my kingdom. I've lost so many opportunities. I wish I could talk to them now, but I've lost that. I talk, I, I've read articles, and I talk to parents who have older kids, and they always say the same thing. Enjoy the time now. Invest in your kids now because you'll lose that opportunity later. You see, the times that you have with your friends, your co-workers, kids, or whatever it is, that season of life is temporary. That, that moment of impact that you can have is temporary. Which means that if you're wasting your time only about yourself, 
you're going to lose out on so many opportunities for God's kingdom. That's why Paul says, make the best use of your time. He's not just saying don't be lazy, but he's saying, what are you depositing every hour of your day? Which bank is it going into? It's okay to enjoy life and sports. There's nothing wrong with that. Well, Paul is getting at this, but be purposeful, especially in your relationships. Don't assume that coworker or that classmate's gonna be around forever. You don't know when they're gonna die. You don't know when you're gonna die. You don't even know when you might move or you might get a new job. Everything is temporary, it's a season. So maximize it. This is the way Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16. He says, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. And notice how he uh, explains what it means to walk wisely. Making the best use of the time. The same word of depositing into a bank. Because the days are evil. You see, the way you live wisely is to live purposefully. To maximize everything. Whatever situation you're in, make the best use of that situation. Pray about the people in your lives now, today. Say something, do something, love somebody today, now. Invest in them instead of just your paycheck. Because paychecks come and go, but relationship will last forever when they're centered on Christ. You know, I think a lot of times the reason why we get distracted is we get too comfortable. I think that's our problem as Americans, myself included. But you know, when I talk to a refugee or somebody that immigrated to the States during a time of war, you know what I noticed about them? They don't really spend that much time talking about sports and the weather with me. Because they know time is valuable. See, they're living in a time of war. They saw people around them getting killed. They do. We don't have time to sit around sipping lemonade all day. We gotta get ready to run. We have to survive. Time is short. Let's live. And so they are very driven in life. They don't really waste their time on Netflix, I know. They're, they're just about, I'm going to make the best use of my life now. I don't want to waste that. I have this opportunity. Some of my cousins didn't make it, but I made it to America, so I'm going to take every opportunity. See, that's what Paul is saying. We all of us are in a spiritual warfare. Satan is attacking left and right. He is distracting and leading people towards hell. But it is up to us as soldiers to know we are in the battle. But some of us as soldiers are kicking up our feet and we just stop and we're not even shooting and we're not going out and we're just watching stuff and enjoying our lives. When Jesus is looking at us saying, I'm your general. What are you doing? I put you here to talk to that person. I put you here to do something. Do something. Do something. Use your gun. Use the sword of the Spirit. Why are you wasting these 60, 70 years on this earth when eternity is at stake? Enjoy life later. Now is the time to work. You're tired? Wait till you die. Get sleep, right? Work now for God's kingdom. There will be plenty of entertainment. Trust me, it's going to be way better than Netflix in heaven. Just trust me on that. Work now. Work hard. And work purposefully. And you know what happens when we get distracted with our mission? We become a busybody. Paul talks about busybodies, by the way, in 2 Thessalonians 3.11. He says, For we hear that some of you, among you, walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Do you know what a busybody is? Literally in the Greek, a busybody is to be somebody else's boss. Right, to act like you're somebody else's boss. Right? Have you, do you guys have friends or people like that? They're always up in your business. Like they want you to give an account to them, which you did every day when you're like, I need to give an account to you. You're not my boss. 
Like that's what a busybody is. They are so idle and distracted that they need to know what's going on in everybody else's life. See, they're not busy with their lives for God's mission, so they become busy with everybody else's life. Well, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? Who's so, what are they doing on social media? Oh, what's this? Oh, wow. What are they doing? I want to do this. I'm going to text them. I'm going to go here. Oh, why can't I go to the I want to travel to so go travel. That's a busybody. And Paul says, I heard some of you guys are busybodies, wasting your life. That's not the way to live. Because time is short. And so you guys may be wondering, okay, what does it look like then to work with a mission? Does that mean when I go to work on Monday or Tuesday that I just go in, I bring a big sign that says, everyone's going to hell. Let's have a Bible study now. Let's all pray together. Is that how you live with the mission? No. You know what Paul actually says? The best way you can live with a mission in your work is not when you just start going to people with people, telling them the gospel left and right without any recourse. You know the best way draw people to the gospel at your work. It is to work hard, honestly, and excellently. You know where I got that from? If you look at Titus chapter 2, 9 to 10, notice what Paul writes to bond servants or workers during this time. He says, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters or bosses and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, which means stealing, but showing all good faith why? Why should you work hard? Why should you not steal company time? Why should you not fight with your boss? Why should you not argue? Why should you not get, you know, why should you get along with your coworkers? Here's the reason. Notice what Paul writes. So that in everything, they, the workers, may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. In other words, the way you work can to bring jewels and a, sh a light, shine a light on Jesus. Do you know that? That the way you work, the best thing you do at your work is to do your work well, excellently, not to be lazy, not to steal company's time, not to sit around saying, hey, if you guys want a Bible study, I'm here, otherwise I don't care what my job is, fire me if you want. That's not actually a testimony. Because think about it like this. Think about the laziest person at your work. Or think about the laziest student in your class. Now, if you can't think of one, it's probably you. But if you think about that laziest person, right? This doesn't laziness undermine the gospel. Like if everybody knows that person is a lazy person, say, like, hey, you know what I'm living for? I'm living for Jesus. People are like, I don't want to live for Jesus if that means it looks like you. You see, the testimony, the way the light shines on the gospel is when you work hard, excellently. The way Paul says in Ephesians is to serve your boss as if you're serving Jesus. That's the way people will see the gospel. That's the way you live purposefully. So it's not just about throwing the gospel around here and there, come to church and give an invitation once in a while. It's actually how do you work all day around your coworkers? Are you reliable? Are you trustworthy? Are you generous? Do you go above and beyond? Or are you just there for a paycheck? Because guess what? Everyone can see that if you're just there for a paycheck. Paul says, Gospel-centered living means to be live wisely, and the way you live wisely is to live purposefully. Make the best use of your time. Even if it's a menial job, make it the, use that job for God's kingdom. You see, any menial job, even if it's meaningless, can become meaningful when you work for a bigger purpose. I remember I heard a story of this man. He was working on an assembly line. His job literally was just to put a cap on each thing. And he was like a toothpaste bottle or something. He was just doing that. 
like 10 hours a day. But then what coworkers noticed that he was always smiling, he was happy, he never complained. And everybody was like, how do you find joy in such a menial task of putting a cap on a toothpaste all day? And he says, because. Because of this, and he took out a picture of his two kids and his wife. I'm not working for the toothpaste. I'm not working for my boss. I'm driven by something more than that. This job allows me to serve my family. So I'm going to enjoy it for as long as I have it. You see, as Christians, even more than family, our purpose is that Jesus is our boss. And even if it's just to put a cap, or, or sweep the floors maybe, or, or clean the toilets, or, or things that we might consider not that meaningful, it is meaningful when you work with a greater purpose. But finally, Paul adds, this ultimately must lead to gospel-centered conversations. Listen. It's one thing to work hard, it's one thing to be honest, it's one thing to be uh, wise, but if you never have conversations about Jesus, people will not know why you are working so hard. People will just look at you and think, he's, he's a hard worker, she's a hard worker, he's really smart, she's really smart, well that person's really wise. But until you actually build up relationships and talk to them about Jesus and the gospel, they will just view you as another hardworking person. See, Paul is saying the reason you work hard and do all of these things is so that you're giving yourself a platform to speak into other people's lives. It's because you're building up credibility so that they don't view you as the laziest person at work and discount everything you have to say, but that since you built up trust, now they're willing to hear what you have to say. See, look at verse 6. He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. See, the first thing we see about gospel-centered conversation is that it has a certain tone. Do you notice he says, always be gracious, seasoned with salt? There are two things that salt did during this time. Salt was a preservative. They didn't have refrigerators, so they had to put salt on meat and things to prevent it from rotting. And you know what he's saying? Speak in such a way to other people where you are life-giving. You're encouraging. Where you're not rotting their souls. You guys know people who just negative Nancy, and then when you see that number on yourself, when you just ignore it, because you're like, the minute I pick it up, it's just going to be an hour of them complaining about everything. Oh, it's just burdens them. Don't be that person. But don't you guys also know people, you get excited, because every time you talk with them, you walk away encouraged, lifted up, and you have a new sense of motivation. You know what Paul is saying? When you talk, the tone you are to use is be life-giving. Build up people. Be gracious in how you talk. Be a preservative in your workplace. This is the way he says in Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is as good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. If your words will not give grace, don't say it. If your words will bring others down or make your boss or your coworkers or your classmates look bad, don't say it. Even if you have every right to be angry, control that tongue. Instead, use your tongue, use that tone as a way to be a preservative, life-giving. But here's the second thing salt does. Salt doesn't just preserve, but it also adds flavor. Right? I don't know if you guys cook, I don't. But what I learned from watching some YouTube videos, I didn't know this is that you have to add salt when you're making desserts. Did you know that? Like when you make a muffin, you need salt. Because apparently when you don't have salt, 
the sugar flavor doesn't come out. It's like the flavor's all gone. So apparently, salt's not only important for salty food, it's important for almost every food for cooking. See, salt adds flavor. What that means is that when you talk, especially when you're talking about Jesus, the tone Paul is talking about, speak with some, some life and flavor. Right? Doesn't your tone sometimes contradict what you say? You know, the best movie I've ever seen of all time is The Godfather. You should definitely watch it. You know, we have a retreat. Oh, it's so great. Jesus is the best. Uh, it doesn't matter what you say. Your tone just kind of, they don't want to hear right? You see, they want to, Paul says, when you talk about Jesus, don't come off as like a sales pitch. Let me do my quota. Uh, let me love you a little bit. No, be excited. Show interest. They want to see that you actually care about them. And people can tell when you're actually interested or if you just blaze off. Gospel-centered conversation begins with your tone. More, just as important as what you say is how you say it. Right? I know you guys, if you guys are couples or married, you know this fact. A lot of fights happen not just with what you say, but with how you say it. How you say is so important. Tone. But here's the second thing. Paul says, not just tone, but you got to get to the content. What you say matters too. Do you notice what he says at the end of verse 6? He says, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. In other words, you don't give a prepackaged answer to every person. You answer every person differently according to what they need to hear. You know what that assumes? It assumes you know the person. It assumes you spend time with the person. It assumes that you know that person's history, some of the baggage, some of the reasons why they don't want to come to Jesus. It assumes that you know the stories about where they were hurt by the church, or where they were hurt as a child, or the hypocrisy they see. Or assumes you know some of their, their questions, their skepticism that they have, that have a hard time understanding how science and the Bible works in it. Or assumes that they are a Buddhist growing up. Do you see what I'm saying? Every person is different. The gospel presentation isn't just one time package deal you said on an infomercial and you just send it out. You talk to each person and you answer them according to what they need to hear. What that means is that this doesn't happen over one meal and you're done. Alright, I had the meal with that coworker. I told about Jesus, they're not interested, I'm moving on. No, Paul says, no, 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 no. As long as you have a season opportunity with that person, keep investing in that person. Get to know that person. Find out what are the barriers and how you can address those barriers to Jesus. Because there's a reason why every person doesn't want to come to Jesus. A lot of it is more personal than it is intellectual. At least that's from my experience. Most of my unbelieving friends, it's not because they haven't heard a logical argument or they haven't heard some kind of academic answer. It's because something hurt them personally that caused them to turn away from Jesus and they don't want to come back to Jesus. And so what people need more than just hearing the gospel through your lips is also your lives. They need you to invest in their lives and care about them. They need to know that you are speaking not about a sales pitch, but about the most important person in your life. When they see that grace transforms broken sinners like you, they are more open to receiving that grace for themselves. So do you see how Paul makes a progression of how your work can be used for his mission? You begin with prayer. You prepare the environment. Prepare your heart defensively. Prepare the environment offensively. And then when you go to work, you work with a purpose. You work wisely. You work intentionally. You work hard. And then when you start to build up relationships, because you build up that credibility, you speak to be 
people with a certain gracious tone, your life giver and encouraging, and then you finally answer what they need to hear about the gospel. And when you go through a gospel-centered prayers, gospel-centered living, and then you have those gospel-centered conversations, that's when people receive the gospel. What that means is that it takes time. A lot of time for some people, maybe shorter time for others, but this takes time. Jesus, when he used a parable about the gospel, he used the parable about the sower and the seeds. He didn't talk about fast food. He talked about farming. Farming takes time. Any farmer knows that. There's patience. You, you, you don't throw seed one day, come back the next day, expect it to be sprouts right away. There's a season. And so while you have a season of sowing in your workplace or at your school, keep sowing. As Galatians 6 says, God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. So keep sowing. Keep sowing. There will be a harvest of righteousness. There will be a harvest of people who will respond to the gospel at some point. But don't stop working. So whatever you do this week, whatever your label is, mother, teacher, doctor, pastor, student, barista, all of us are undercover agents. We're all working for the same boss, the same king, and the same kingdom. We all have the same mission. And there are certain people God has placed in your life that you can only reach. Pastor David cannot reach that person, but you can. And he has placed you in that job, in this situation, so that you can pray for them, so that you can work well with them, and so that you can ultimately have conversations about Jesus and share grace with Him. When you work in this way, I guarantee no matter what your job is, it will be meaningful, it will be purposeful, it will give you joy, because no longer is your job about the job or the paycheck, your job is about people. And when you invest in people with God's purpose, that is when You'll be thankful and grateful in all circumstances. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we uh, looked at what the Apostle Paul had to say about working with a mission, working for the gospel, I pray that you be with every single one of us to help us see the place you have put us, why we are to work, and the people, more importantly, you have placed in our lives you want us to reach. I pray that we will have a different perspective about our jobs. We will no longer complain, but we will pray defensively. We will pray for opportunities offensively, and that we will work well, work wisely, work honestly, so that we can have conversations about the gospel. Lord, be with us and forgive us for wasting our time at work or neglecting the people around us. Help us have new eyes when we go back to our jobs to really view the people around us as the mission field and to constantly talk to you through our walkie-talkies, knowing how you want us to live and treat others for your glory. Be with us, be with Shining Star, and allow them to, to be a light and a salt, not just when they gather on Sundays, but wherever they are during the week. Jesus, we pray.